I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome! You've got digital folklore. This is the story of Perry Carpenter and Mason Amadeus. Oh, and a talking raccoon named Digby. There's no time to explain. Together, they're on an adventure to unlock the secrets of modern folklore, interviewing experts, and delving into online rabbit holes. But, <laughs> as it turns out, they may be in over Carpenter. And I'm Mason Amadeus. And this is Digital Folklore. God, of all places, why is it always Todd's? Who is he with? 
That guy looks kind of familiar. <laughs> Did somebody just rear it? You kidding? Hey, uh, man, I I am so so sorry. The brakes on this van are. Yeah, hi Perry. Mason? We can exchange insurance later. What are you doing here? No, I I got it covered. But did you get my message? No, um, I sort of dropped my phone into the moat outside of Mark's house. Then what are you doing here? What Digby blew past me in a car with some guy, and so I I followed them, and I just saw them go inside Todd's place. That's not a good sign. What? Todd is the center of this whole thing. What? Yeah, the the, the weird light in my trunk, the the missing time, everything getting weird. Even Digby being able to talk? Harry, this is absolutely not the time. No, listen, things actually used to be normal. Do you do you remember the first time that we went to the pawn shop? Uh, I remember that you kept complaining about it. Uh, I found an unopened copy of Donkey Kong 64 and I picked up the bike that I bought. Do you remember when Todd took us into that huge back room and he even said, it's bigger on the inside? I, I mean, yeah. How could it be bigger on the inside? God, I don't know, man. It was just a joke. Just look over there. Look at the storefront. Uh, it looks kind of dumpy. And he's doing some weird holiday promotion. What? He's on the corner. The only space next to it is taken up by that gym. And you can see all the way to the back wall from here. So you tell me, where would that back room be? How does it, how does it fit? Uh, well, and what's huh. this whole thing about him, like, knowing your dad? Todd used to play bass in a band with him. Yeah, that, that band's name was The Next, right? Yeah. Well, huh? I found an old band camp page. Oh, it, probably not the right one. They your were... dad's name is Ken, right? Yes, it is. Right. He played keys and was the lead singer. There were other members of the band, three other members, Todd, Randy, and Greg. Why were you creeping on my dad's old band? Because this isn't that Todd. What are you even talking about? I have pictures and everything. Plus, Todd played guitar. Randy played bass. Look, I'm already worried about Digby going in there with some weird stranger. I don't need you gaslighting me about my own father right now. Hey, hey, hey. I, I need you to believe me. Todd... It's not what he seems. Dude, we have hashed this out like a hundred times now. Earlier today, I caught Todd's voice on the interview that we did with Andrea Kita. What? So if your friend posts something, you're more likely to believe it because you trust that friend. You know that person, right? See? Right there. That's Todd, right? Play that again. More likely to believe it because you trust that friend. You know that person, right? That's... Okay, I mean, that's... It, it kept happening in these unpredictable moments, and then I finally, finally caught it on tape. Uh, but, it, but it could be like a sample rate glitch, right? Like, like it's playing back at the wrong speed, makes her voice sound wrong, or, or a hardware issue. No, I figured it out. It only happens when I stop paying attention. You realize how unbelievable that sounds, right? What? Paying attention to anything for over an hour for you sounds unbelievable? No. Okay, haha, ha, very good. No, look, I agree, that's super weird, and it does sound like Todd. I'll give you those things. But I genuinely don't understand the bigger picture that you seem to think exists here. I think we've been Mandela'd into an alternate reality, or some kind of simulation that's all controlled by Todd. It, it feels like he's toying with us, but I, 
I think he's getting bored or maybe overextending himself. And we're starting to see the frayed edges of this whole thing, like cracks in the facade. Uh, yeah, okay, no, now you've lost me. That, this just sounds like some low-grade Reddit creepypasta. But it would sound like that, right? It's like you and Digby switched brains, man. Where is all of this coming from? This just doesn't seem right to me. I mean, call it intuition or cognitive bias or whatever. My gut says there's more to this. And the only way to be sure is to go confront Todd. Okay. Okay, fine. How about this? We go in, we get Digby, and I'll help you find Todd. We can talk to him, we go home, and we all can laugh about this later. Deal. But... If this thing goes sideways, you need to trust me. Sure, whatever. Oh. Wow. There's a lot of people here. All for this Dada December thing. I can't imagine why that would bring this many people into a pawn shop. Mm -hmm. Maybe we are in an alternate universe. Look around. The entire layout for this shop has changed. I was joking. It's not just rearranged. I mean, the walls, uh, the, the everything hey, are... Harry, Mason. Oh, no way. Josh. Josh from Meme Expo. I thought I saw you guys standing outside and chatting. Yeah, we came here looking for someone. Oh, yeah? Who? Uh, Digby. Todd. Both. Both. Digby and Todd. Isn't Digby the little raccoon fella? Yes. I, I don't think you two have met, but he's, I mean, he's hard to miss. I just saw him chatting with Andrew Peck. Andrew Peck is here? He is. They came in together. What? Really? D- and so what are you doing here? Same thing as Andrew, probably. This is such an interesting venue for an event that has so much intersectionality with folklore. Yeah, I was sort of wondering about that. I didn't know this was going on. Yeah, I thought it was just some kind of marketing gimmick. Oh, there's a bunch of stuff today. Ian Brody is hosting a panel on absurdist humor in a little bit. There's a sale on misprinted plush emoji pillows all day. And then Digital Void is putting on a meme music rave at 8. That actually sounds cool. Have you seen Todd at all? The guy who owns the place? Yeah, sort of a middle-aged, really tall, wiggles his eyebrows a lot whenever he talks. I don't know him personally, but I think I've seen him running around and checking up on stuff. Have you been here all day? Pretty much, yeah. My name is Josh Chapdelaine. I am the co-founder and head of production at Digital Void. I am also the associate director of the Media Studies Master's Program at CUNY Queens College. We just wrapped up at Digital Void our final Meme in the Moment Festival of 2023, where we explored visions for a better internet with a world-class lineup of speakers who are interested in bringing many diverse perspectives to the discussion about how we not just diagnose the problems of the contemporary internet, but how we work to create solutions in that space. Oh, that's actually really cool. Before we get to talking about absurdism, can we talk about that a little bit? What was sort of the highlight of of, of that? Because I'm very interested in building a better internet for the future. <laughs> this show was largely informed by the question that I feel like I was asked several times a week, beginning with the acquisition of Twitter by Elon Musk in late 2022. And that is, What happens next? How does the internet evolve if all of our mainstream social media platforms are breaking? And there is no one solution. There are myriad solutions. And those solutions need to be developed by a diverse range of people in this space. So 
we put our heads together and thought about the key people in this space who could contribute to a broader conversation about this. So we brought together academics like Dr. Jamie Cohen. We brought together brand strategists who are working on this from the communications and strategic side, like Jenny Chang. We also incorporated brand strategist uh, Rachel Greenspan. We had award-winning journalists, Kat Tenbarge, a wide variety of others as part of this show. And ultimately, the thing that became most clear to me is that the branding and agency side so oftentimes misses the perspective of creative labor and the content creation and creator economy side of things so often is not connected with the academic part of things. And there's a new landscape of needing to connect these groups that are all working on similar problems but are not oftentimes in the same rooms. And so there is a ton of opportunity there. Yeah. And, and that's such an interesting problem to be working through because the internet is a space. It's, it's decentralized. And the, you have obviously the education aspect of you know, media literacy to get people to navigate through how it is now. But it's really interesting to think how we can shape the internet as a whole going forwards because we've seen the internet change shape over time, particularly as it was adopted and corporations came in with, with big money presences and built these pillar platforms. And then, like you said, Twitter gets bought by Elon Musk. What does that mean? It's very easy, I feel like, to feel sort of powerless. Like you're just kind of watching the internet go from a place you loved to a place that's just feeding you what it wants to feed you. And it feels like there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. It feels oftentimes like we lack agency in these spaces. And I think that's by design, right? I think if we understand the structural perspective of this, the commercial internet is dominated by a few major players, whether it be Meta or X or Byte, you name it. They control a lot of the communication infrastructure on the internet. And when we lose trust in that infrastructure, uh, since late 2022, there have been hundreds of thousands of layoffs at tech companies. And many of those layoffs were to trust and safety teams. And the trust and safety teams are the foundation of what makes a community safe on the internet. And this is the internet that a lot of Gen Z is growing up into. A, a pet theory that I have, when we talk about Gen Z humor and like the absurdism and the sort of meaningless messiness that is present in a lot of what people call Gen Z humor, deep fried memes, things that look like just JPEG compression gone completely <laughs> beyond anything that is reasonable. I feel like that is a response to this kind of pressure and lack of agency that we're feeling specifically on the internet and because kids these days growing up with the internet being such a prevalent part of life. Uh, it, you can't get away from it. So there's this helplessness feeling. I don't know. Is that something that you've seen or when you've been doing your, your work with Digital Void, have you encountered or talked about Gen Z humor and nihilism and meaninglessness? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think there's two things, at least two things at play. It's, pr it's probably many more than two things. But for the sake of this conversation, let's let's focus on two things. Number one, I, I realized that there is a really great parallel between the aesthetics of content production on Instagram that dominated the 2010s and the sensibility that is assigned to memes in modern times. Um, and what I mean by that is that Taylor Lorenz in the late 2010s wrote an amazing piece called The Instagram Aesthetic is Over. And what the piece details is how high production values came to dominate Instagram, a platform that was designed 
for low fidelity that captured the Polaroid camera in its logo and that had to compensate for a lack of uh, quality in digital photos in the early 2010s by intentionally layering low quality filters, right? It wasn't just a retrieval of those. It was to mask the low production quality. But as commercial investment began to fuel the space, what happened was high production values, think uh, influencers like the Kardashians at the time, the teams associated with and the investment associated with content production on Instagram began to balloon. And so what was viewed as authentic was the high production value. But after a few years, that story didn't necessarily play well. And so the pendulum swung in the other direction, where authenticity became viewed as low fidelity, low production, unmanicured. Um, here's a selfie of me that would not be viewed as commercially acceptable, but I'm going to share intimate details of my life in order to promote maybe my new brand-sponsored coffee deal, right? And I think when we see the commercial investment and the return go from the high-quality, high-aesthetic values of the 2010s to the more low-fidelity, we see the structural shift in memes as well. Interesting. And to bring this back to the uh, conversation about how trust in platforms has eroded, Trust in platforms erodes, so people go to niche community platforms like Discord, like Telegram, and specifically to curated group chats. And so memes are not just evolving in the way of um, what is posted mainstream, but the more niche a community you're in, the more nuanced, the more layered a meme can be because there's a smaller in-group, which means by default there's a larger out-group. So when we see absurdism, yes, it's absurd to the majority of people, but the majority of people are not the intended audience for many of these memes. So we have a few things at play. I think to wrap up this very long answer, it is number one, we've seen a structural and aesthetic shift from trust in mainstream platforms, as well as a lot of communication and memes being shared on mainstream platforms. Uh, that has shifted to smaller niche communities and group chats. And memes, by very nature of being created for smaller groups have been afforded the ability to have more nuance and more layers and uh, more tailored to specific in-groups. That then creates the dichotomy that, wait a second, uh, memes that were popular 10 years ago could be understood by everyone. Now they can't. And that's a reflection of the larger environment we inhabit. Hey, listeners, if you're like me and enjoy escaping to a real movie theater, then Regal Unlimited just makes sense. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And your membership lets you get into premium format shows like IMAX and 4DX at a reduced cost. Plus, you'll save 10% on all non-alcoholic concessions. Regal Unlimited. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So, if you're planning on seeing a couple movies this month, join Regal Unlimited. Now is the best time as summer's coming up. Sign up now in the Regal app or on the website at regmovies.com unlimited. And be sure to use the code FOLKLORE24 to get 10% off a three-month subscription. 
Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Hey ya, Mason here, and I don't think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I have two cats, two big old boys named Chester and Cinders, and I love them both very much, but I didn't grow up with cats, and I've never suffered from general allergies like pollen, so it took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that I was allergic to them. No joke, when I started working from home, I would say things like, wow, I feel like I'm losing my voice every day, or isn't it weird, I can't breathe through my nose for some reason. Ultimately, it was my partner who said, that really sounds like allergies. And long story short, now I take a Claritin every day. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claret and clear. Use as directed. What have you seen in terms of like what kinds of content people are sharing or specifically what kind of content Gen Z is sharing? Is there even mm. a real strong connection between Gen Z and absurdist or nihilistic or meaningless kind of humor as like a main point? I see multiple things happening here. I, I think I say there are multiple things happening here for everything. So maybe I'll <laughs> stop saying that. But the first thing that I see is that it's almost a mistake to read too much into what's happening in that the point of a nihilistic meme is either to express a general anxiety or emotion, memes or vessels, but also sometimes it's just for the lulls, right? And I think that's a big part of what meme culture is. I think sometimes there is a joy of making things so esoteric and so out there so as to intentionally confuse an outgroup. And that practice of making things deliberately unreadable to other audiences is part of the fun. How absurd can we get is the point. But I think, again, I love to take historical views of everything. And I think memes, at least mainstream memes, became really politicized and they became really ingrained in culture wars in 2010s. So everything from Doge to Pepe the Frog became so weaponized. Uh, memes became the language of dismiss and malinformation. And so when we think about Pepe the Frog's evolution from stoner frog to, in China, a, a symbol of democracy, and in the United States, Pepe the Frog and Kekistan flags ended up in the capital on January 6th. When we think about Doge being so closely associated with Elon and a certain type of not just cryptocurrency, but also libertarian ethos as well as uh, populist ethos, we think, oh, okay, memes are being used for populist reasons, they're being used for political reasons. And even if we were to take a, a somewhat different approach of an aesthetic from the 2010s, the Bernie Sanders meme with the, I am once again asking you to do XYZ meme, which was super popular, all of those memes are some of the most recognizable memes of the last 13 years. All of them are political and heavy. And I think when you see the contrasting style of how artists and meme makers are using Dadaism and nihilism and absurdism to promote the counter to that, it's saying, hold on, wait a minute. We don't need everything to be so freaking serious. And the point of these memes is to communicate in contrast to the dominant narratives and the dominant modes of production. And I think that those are the memes that truly are created for in-groups and are more targeted toward like the Gen Z demographic. So it's kind of, it kind of feels like a get out of our space kind of thing when it's like, uh, <laughs> do you remember the meme that was, I mean, I'm sure you do because you're the, the meme expert, uh, silence brand 
where it's like a crab with laser <laughs> eyes and people are using it to respond to brand Twitter. Yes. One of my favorites of all time is that one. But it, it sounds like there is sort of this idea of, because like you said, I, I didn't think about that, but the last, the most recognizable memes in recent memory are really heavy and political. And so in a way is this devoid of meaning, this makes no sense and that's funny, like, like a counterculture sort of pushback to capitalism and online marketing? Yes. Um, and I'm so happy you brought back the silence brand meme because I don't want to get too far ahead, but I do think that this is where it's heading. So unfortunately, many meme, popular meme formats that start from artists and um, collectives of people end up going through an iterative process where they end up being commodified or co-opted by movements. We saw it with Pepe. We saw it with Doge. We've seen it countless times through the years. Even Dark Brandon, which we discussed during our first conversation, is now productized and being sold by the Biden 2024 campaign. There are coffee mugs that when you pour hot coffee into it, the sunglasses disappear and the laser eyes appear, which holy I, I that's still it's just beyond my scope that this thing that 15 years ago was viewed as weird, irrelevant, and you couldn't get marketing dollars is now driving elections. So then when we go back to absurdism, is part of that, because there's always uh, just so many factors affecting everything, but I, I guess something I didn't think about until now is that one of the factors might be this is non-commodifiable. Good luck, uh, Casper Mattresses, taking my roast beef <laughs> cactus meme and turning it into an ad. Like, you can't. Exactly. Is that an aspect? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's try to figure us out. I also think your point is fully supported by the fact that, yeah, you can't commodify something that you don't understand, but it is absolutely hysterical to a community to watch, especially elder people or people in the out group, I guess is more appropriate to say, try to decode what you're creating in a way that lends it way more seriousness and credibility than it was ever intended to have. Yeah. It's like a breakdown and analysis of something that was not created with that much intentionality. Right. Absolutely that. So it's interesting that people engage with it, but it also, it just makes a lot of intuitive sense there. And I'm not plugged into the Gen Z space that much. I have two younger sisters. The youngest one is Gen Alpha. My middle sister is Gen Z. They both are cooler than me. And so I'm not in sort of the same <laughs> online circles. What is Gen Z doing? Are they all right? Like what, like what are they into? <laughs> they're great. Yeah, they're, they're great. I have no worries about Gen Z. So I was thinking about this last night because something that I'm always aware about as uh, now I'm 30, I've been online literally since I can remember. I've lived through the evolution of AOL. I use dial-up. Not many people have used dial-up. Um, I, I play the dial-up noise in my class so people know what it sounded like. And so I'm always really conscious of, of trying to ascribe or prescribe what's happening with an entire generation. It's so nuanced. There are so many different communities that congregate in so many different spaces. But what I will say is that I do, I do think from a macro perspective, not much has changed. And by that, I mean, Mason, can you guess what the most popular meme as voted by Know Your Meme and Wired Magazine was in 2013, a decade ago? In 2013? Okay. Yeah. That time is so fuzzy in my brain. Was it was it like the Picard meme? That was an earlier one. It was Doge. Was Doge? In 2013, it was Doge? It was Doge. On both Know Your Meme and Wired, the most popular meme or the number one meme of 2013 was Doge. It was followed by the Harlem Shake and Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball. Those were trends then. But I think if we're looking at what is popular this year? Know Your Meme recently published the most popular memes of 2023. It's everything from the Kevin James smirking meme 
which is, I think, 20th or 19th on Know Your Memes list, that's a very what you see is what you get meme. It's it's very, it's not that layered. It's not that nuanced. It's yeah, an that's... awkward smile. Um, huh. Riz is short for charisma, but in a more sexually suggestive way. Cool. There was language that was similar or not too dissimilar from what was happening 10 years ago. But also Doge is still very popular today. Pepe is still very popular today. The memes of 10 years ago and their applications are not all that different, especially if we're leaning into absurdism. There was a trend, the lights out trend on TikTok this year was almost identical to the Harlem Shake 10 years ago. So uh, Harlem Shake, very popular for um, those who don't remember it. It was uh, a popular song and a group of people got together and they paused and did a dance. This year, the lights out trend on TikTok was when the lights switch from on to off and a new person's at the front every time and they're doing an absurd dance. They are mirrors of each other and it's a 10 year difference. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. Even Doge at the time, part of the appeal of Doge was that it was a little bit absurd. Like it's dog with an E at the end. Like, and it's just a dumb thing. Yes. Then why do we even have the phrase Gen Z humor? Marketing. Oh, no. Is it marketing? <laughs> it's marketing. Have I been marketed to and I didn't realize? Well, well, I think there's a larger point here. Marketing is the simplistic answer. Right. I, I do think we started the conversation talking about the structural shift. And I think that memes are communication. And communication mirrors the dominant modes or structures that we inhabit. And when we shift from inhabiting larger shared spaces to smaller spaces, of course, we're not going to understand the nuance of what we're talking about as much as we did. And also, there's been a big shift in who has influence and in what online spaces. Influence on social media used to mean that you were more tapped into a monoculture than exists today. Ryan Broderick has done a lot of great work this year detailing how you can't read TikTok the same way that you read Instagram or Twitter a decade ago because a video on TikTok that has two or three million views is certainly well-viewed, but in the grand scope of larger trends or hashtags on TikTok, that is relatively low. He detailed some of the most popular videos on TikTok, and many people have not seen the most popular videos because of the global scale and the hyper-specific targeting. There are so many examples of how we've been fragmented into smaller communities, and those smaller communities have just been better defined. So without the larger monoculture and with us each inhabiting smaller pockets of online space, the traditional lines or barriers have been blurred, and therefore memes have come to follow that. It's not that they're more or less absurd or more or less nihilistic. It's that we have less of a mainstream cultural consciousness to be constantly tapped into. So things that suddenly appear to be popular are actually just festering and growing in other areas and have been. They just weren't for us. Right. That is so well put. I didn't, yeah, that's, we thought of the internet as this big unifying thing. We talk a lot about how it really is creating a lot of smaller disparate groups. And there's just this, this bleed over, this overlap that you see sometimes when the edges of your algorithm intersect with the edge of some other random algorithm you're not a part of. Yes. And if I can add a little bit more about why I think this is only going to get stranger and more fragmented, I think it's important. So uh, the United Kingdom has done a really brilliant job getting ahead of the curve in, in some forms of regulation when it comes to the internet. They were famous for being the country that allowed David Carroll from the New School to sue Cambridge Analytica for access to his data to figure out what data they had. And that led to GDPR, which is responsible for people having more autonomy and agency 
it with their data. And responsible for those little pop-ups you now see about accepting cookies. Yes. It's actually a good thing. I know those boxes are annoying, but it's a good thing. It is. It's a very good thing. But this is all going to get really interesting because the new UK Online Safety Act just passed. And now there are going to be larger structural changes to the internet, right? So on the table are everything from how will uh, social media companies and governments figure out how to do age verification? What are the implications of biometric data? Will you have to take a selfie to prove your age or will you upload your ID? There's a Western state in the United States that is requiring you submit um, your ID to log on to pornographic websites, which is causing a lot of privacy concerns right now. That's separate from the UK, but people are like, wait a minute, hold on, I don't want that. In the United Kingdom, they are grappling with some of those issues related to privacy concerns, but also there's a big debate around end-to-end encryption, right? Proponents of end-to-end encryption are saying that it's really important uh, for security purposes. And on the other side, people are saying, well, wait a minute, how are we going to detect uh, harmful material and CSAM and hold bad actors to account? And so all of these things will influence the structural nature of the internet and the communities that we inhabit and the memes that result. So if you think things are confusing now, wait until 50 elections take place in 2024 and the structure of the internet continues to morph. You are so right. And that ties us all the way back to the beginning, talking about what you focused on in that meme in the moment conference. And I didn't, I, this didn't occur to me at the time, but GDPR is a great example of a single inciting moment that changes a big piece of the shape of the internet. Yes, totally. And, uh, with all of these changes on the horizon, I need to start paying better attention myself to uh, these these trends in internet regulation because it sounds as though there's a lot of big stuff on the horizon, like the very near horizon. Yeah, and it's going to be messy. I mean, already this year, we've seen a few shifts that are messy. Canada passed a new bill this year that wanted to cut advertisers into the profits from uh, Facebook when uh, the publisher's articles are shared because Facebook gets to earn revenue on those articles being posted. But the publications don't necessarily get a cut of that. So editorial revenue has gone down across the board over the last few decades. Canada said, okay, you're going to have to start profit sharing. And so Facebook, in response, banned news articles from being posted in Canada. So then the consumers are hurt. They're like, nope, we're not doing that. (laughs) And this is because the shareholders didn't want to lose money. Exactly. Exactly. So these are the types of things that will influence how we interact with each other online and the types of spaces we inhabit. Oops. Sorry, folks. Don't mind me. Just getting things set up here for Ian Brody. Well, there's Todd. He's going to be doing a little presentation for you in a couple of minutes, and he'll be taking some questions and stuff all about uh, folklore and uh, absurd and society and yada yada. Since when does Todd have interest in folklore? In the meantime, make sure you take a look at the crate of misprinted emoji pillows. I sold a wicked cool vomiting cowboy emoji this morning. I just saw a crying eggplant on my way up here. Good stuff. Check it out. And in two minutes, we'll get Ian up on the stage for you. Thanks for coming to our first ever Dada December. Josh, awesome to catch up with you, man. Same to you. Let's keep in touch. And we should definitely collaborate more with Digital Folklore and Digital Void. Yeah, totally. I'll I'll get an email thread going when we're back in the studio. Um, I think right now we're going to go and try and catch Todd. See you later. Take care, Josh. And um, if I were you, I'd keep an eye on Todd. Um, okay. Is it just me or did Todd seem more 
lively than usual. He's got like a hundred people in his shop. I think he's just in the zone. No, but he seems to be like gaining power from all the attention, like a tulpa or something. Yeah, or like, I don't know, a guy hosting a big event in his local business. You can't tell me that he doesn't give off a weird vibe. It's not just extrovert energy. Yeah, but we give off a weird vibe, Perry. We walk around and basically interview everybody we meet. That's not the same. He's, I, I don't know how else to say it is, but he's got big sinister energy. Big sinister, what, because he's got a gravelly voice? Yeah, I mean, he does have a gravelly voice. Hey, it's... look, Dig Digby. Huh? And I guess that's Andrew Peck okay. over there. Oh, okay, let's- Thank you, th th thank you all for coming. After this? Yeah. We can work our way over there and get Digby. My name is Ian Brody. My day job is I'm a professor of folklore at Cape Breton University, and I am actually currently the president of the International Society for Contemporary Legend Research, and weirdly, also of the Folklore Studies Association of Canada, Association Canadienne d'Ethnologie et de Folklore. I'm working also with Greg Kelly and Eric Eliasson on a book on the relationship between legend and joke, because we've often talked about those as very overlapping genres. Oddly enough, I don't know if I necessarily call myself a humor scholar. Like I'm not particularly immersed in the slightly arcane world of humor theory and joke theory and so on. Uh, I do like humor as, as a topic because we are almost immediately impelled to give humor its most serious spin. That the, the study of humor or even the function of humor to begin with, even before its study, is to sublimate tension, is a sort of stress release, a superiority theory or so on. And we almost forget that humor is fun, that a joke is delightful and aesthetically pleasing. While I can still have that conversation about the importance of humor in terms of what it might mean, the very fact that if I tell a joke and you laugh, we are experiencing something that is first and foremost an aesthetic reaction to it and that we are both delighting in it and we are exchanging that delight. And that is something that we should at least pause and think about and accept that that is often what the folk themselves most appreciate about a joke. It's a good laugh, end of story. It's an area that I'm trying to sort of explore a little bit more in terms of folklore in general, and that we have this tendency of wishing to talk about deeper meaning, and it's critical and important that we do, but we should also pause and think about that these are affective, embodied, delightful, potentially joyous, and potentially traumatic as well, but moving things. That artistic communication in small groups talks about art, not incidentally, and we should momentarily, momentarily sit there for a second and come up with a vocabulary that talks about these things better without having to justify them only on the levels of deeper profundity and deeper meaning but we just have a terrible vocabulary for discussing joy and it makes us sound weird, so we don't talk about it. And it's like, that's not an actual solution. The basic premise of folklore is that we exist in groups, but those groups are sort of brought together through its artistic performances. We need to take the idea that those artistic performances are found to be artistic seriously. One of my bugaboos is how We've typically sort of had to describe the stand-up as social critic, as anthropologist, as you know, cultural critic or whatever, as if the idea of, of being entertaining is insufficient. But once you establish that they have a deeper purpose and that they use humor at that, then they're sort of given carte blanche license to say anything because it is 
about truth-telling and exposure, but also simultaneously it's about performance and play. And so you have people hiding behind the character of the stand-up to justify whatever. Now, I think there's a sort of aspect of truth in as much as humor needs to have a certain form of relevance to it, because it, it needs to sort of at least advert to the presence of the possibility of belief. In the same way that legend sort of is balanced on that issue of credibility, in that it's not so much that I believe this to be true, or when I'm telling it, it's not so much that uh, I, I know it's to be true, but I do know that other people are doubting it. I do know that this, this very possibility might at least contravene common acceptance. So when we tell a legend, I might say, oh yeah, that's not true, but I understand why people might believe it. In the same way that like, oh no, it's absolutely true and they don't want you to know this sort of thing. That's Linda Daig's issue of the dialectics of legend and that doubt is always one of those things. And I think joke works the same way. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm very much enamored of Elliot Oring's idea that humor is basically the apprehension of an appropriate incongruity. You're set off in one direction, and the punchline provides a second answer, which makes sense as long as one grasps that there's sort of a category slip. And I, I like to think of it as in terms of moving from the indicative to the subjunctive somehow. I mean, his classic example that what he goes back to time and time again is, when is a door not a door? When it's a jar. And it's like, okay, well, what do you need to understand to, to grasp that joke? And it's about the homophonic qualities of a jar and a jar. You see the mechanism and it's like, oh, okay. And, you, and really, you appreciate the mechanism. The aesthetics of joke is sort of grasping the, the leap that one has to take, and therefore the leap that one had to have taken in its construction in order to achieve that momentary glitch that is the uh, that is that sort of release. The absurdist joke is is where the connection between those two is so obscure. It's not homophonic. It's you know it's not a jar jar. It's not a pun. It's not necessarily building on some 
blatant but implied prejudice about the group in, in context, like, like a dumb blonde joke might function as. It's just weird. And so now you're not really immediately grasping the mechanism and finding delight in that frisson of the gap between the expected and, and the consequence and therefore appreciating the wit of the joke's construction. It's more a matter of puzzlement, but the puzzlement is kind of the point, I think. And that's where you get that absurdism, the, the notion that the joke does not unfold in any way that you are necessarily expecting it to unfold which is really becomes a kind of meta-commentary on the nature of jokes themselves. I think one of the things that strikes me about sort of contemporary Gen Z or millennial humor in the, this absurdist thing is that it's very much a, a, an idea of the, the internet. It might be pointing to the strange idea that the joke makes sense somewhere, but we're sort of in this, this place where everything is available to us. All time and space and communities are basically, they're not null and void, but the rules have been changed. The internet is basically the site of infinite choice and infinite possibility, allows for the, the, the notion of, well, we just kind of have to question all the genres that they've been presented to us before, and even the content therein. Because again, someone has to find that joke in infinite universes, you know, with an infinite number of monkeys, one of them's going to come up with a joke that another infinite monkey is going to find hilarious. Uh, online, we come across things that only make sense in the context in which they arose, but we're exposed to them because those borders have been erased. And so it's like this, what, what, what about the idea of jokes that are contextless, I guess? I mean, I'm always surprised because I've got like an international crew of people on my Facebook pages. And every now and then there's this wonderful meme that comes up, but it's in like Croatian or something. And and I see it and there's lots of har har emojis, you know, responses to it. It's like, I have no idea what this is. I know it's funny, or at least I know it's being found funny. Someone thought it sufficient to post. Other people thought it sufficient to react to. Completely meaningless, except it's like angry mafia baby. That's all I really know. So just that notion of just coming across this whole other world, which is not where most of our joke material had been prior to the early 21st century. That kind of material was interpersonal or mass-mediated, but with the expectation of it being met you know, for the hardest impact. And when no one gets it, and it's just like, it is, it is a nonsensical act, it's just intriguing. It can be infuriating as well. You have to be comfortable in your own unknowingness to really delight in it. It's like, oh, the world is full of mystery, whether on a sort of a metaphorical level or a cynical level, it's just like, eh. I mean, like a deeply profound mystical, mysterious level or a, or a absurdist, cynical, uh, nihilist level. It's like, ah, thing, nothing makes sense. But for those who demand answers, those are the ones who are frustrated. And then you know that there are people out there who demand answers who are being frustrated by it. And again, that's kind of the delight. And that's now sort of this dialectic of it. It's like, I know that I don't get this, but I'm okay with it. Other people, oh, let me watch them just scratching their heads and trying to figure out what's going on. One of the hallmarks of the folk revival and the history of, of interest in folklore in general is how it often coincides with these moments of political upheaval and sort of grand existential moments. So, I mean, like the first wave happening at the end of the Industrial Revolution and the beginnings of sort of the, the, the movements of Europe and, and the, the dissolution of the nation states or the, uh, the smaller principates in the beginning of nation state and so on. 
there's a population that then more or less inhabits that sense of uncertainty. And the notion that these myths, these narratives, these traditional understandings of the things that were promised to us are not actually functioning, that is a time for absurdism. At the same time, as much as you have these sort of groups that are about the uncertain, you then also have a similar movement towards rigid orthodox certainty. So that's where you get your, like, the I think the rise of populism of the past five years. So you have these two groups. They're, they're both sort of reactions. There's one, the, the stories we were told were, were false, and then the stories we were told were absolutely fundamentally true, and people have just lost the faith. And I think that's it. I sort of put it into a context of whenever there's like this, an economic upheaval, you've got two kinds of dancing that emerges. You've got like line dancing and you've got slam dancing. So in the 1970, in late 1970s, you had disco and you had punk at the exact same time. In the early 1990s, you had the emergence of country line dancing and you had grunge at the exact, those were the two musics at the time. And I think there's a sort of, there, there's an idea of free form negation that happens in, in things like punk. And there's things like rigid conformity that happens in, in at least the white version of disco that took over in the 70s and, and country line dancing. I mean, the internet is the context in which this once more failure of what our previous generations have told us would be the future uh, is occurring. Just in the same way that the emergence of big band and records occasioned what happened in the 1920s and then, you know, subsequently 1950s and radio and television were, were dominant. Internet is what's happening in 2000 when our future is uncertain, or at the very least, we have seen too much to take those narratives at a superficial face value. Uh, and so that might be the context of certain forms of absurdism. Because we also have the, the flip side of that, which is sort of fairly tame stuff. And I think we do have the rise of the dad joke, and we do have the rise of sort of earnestness that we haven't seen in a while. And there's a lot of earnest stuff on the internet. There's a whole TikTok thread called like Black Men Cavorting. And it's just, you know, mi middle-aged dad bod African-American gentlemen just frolicking, just like sort of happy. It's it's not funny, but it is it's, it's a delight that can actually inspire laughter. It's just like, look at that guy. Isn't that great? So I think we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of sincerity online. As, as much as we're seeing absurdity, we're seeing a lot more people tell each other that they love themselves. You know, I love you guys. And it's like, yeah, that's happening at the same time as this sort of nihilism in, in humor. I don't think they're necessarily in opposition to each other. I mean, sometimes there's a dialectic to them, but sometimes they're just sort of complementary to each other. I mean, they're, they're both often present. So we don't want to focus on the one without at least seeing in some aspects the, the, the flip side of it in the, the individual, not to mention on the, like, the larger cultural scale of, of camps, as it were. Thank you all for coming. Oh, no, no. Where did Digby and Andrew go? Last place I saw him was right there. I didn't notice if they slipped away during Ian's talk. Maybe they went up to talk to him right after we started walking. Maybe, but I, I don't I don't see them by the stage. I don't think they would have left yet. Maybe they... Howdy there, fellas. <laughs> Long time no see. Hi. Hello, Todd. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to scare you. What brings the two of yous into Dada December? Well, we were looking. We were actually looking for you, Todd. Me? There's something I need to ask you about. Finally, 
You want to interview me for your little documentary show, huh? Not exactly, Todd. I have some questions about the last time we were in here. Oh, no. Did the bicycle not work out? You know I don't do returns. No, Todd. The bike is fine. Actually, I mean, the front brakes don't... I brought something to show you. Ah, an appraisal. Why don't we step into my office for a second and take a look? Yeah, let's have a little chat if you've got a minute. Oh, I've always got a minute for my two favorite customers. Right in here. Th thanks. Take a seat. No, I'll stand. I'll, I'll sit down. Ah, all right, boys. What do you got for me? Well, Todd, ever since that night that we picked up the bicycle, I've been noticing some strange things going on. Hmm, right. That was the time you all spent hours in here, talking the ears off my customers, right? Let's cut to the chase. Earlier today, when I was editing part of our show, I caught something very interesting on the tape. Ah, like a ghost? Uh, some kind of hidden message? I think you'll find it's something familiar. So if your friend posts something, you're more likely to believe it because you trust that friend. And you know that person, right? That's you. That's your voice. What is your voice doing in this recording, Todd? Todd? Ah, well, it was fun while it lasted. But you're right. I've been stretching myself a bit too thin lately. Time to wrap up some loose ends. The door! Like I told you, you'll never know what you're gonna find if you keep your eyes open. Thanks for listening to Digital Folklore. If you like the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And tell a friend or two about the show. That is the easiest and most impactful way to help keep us going. Thank you to our guests, Josh Chapdelaine and Ian Brody. You can find links to their work in the show notes. Thanks as well to Rich Daigle for providing the voice of Todd. And thanks to Matthew Bliss for editing the interview segments. As always, there's a link in the show notes to join our Discord community. It's a place to chat with us as well as other fans of the show. It's a lot of fun. There's everything from interesting discussion around folklore to an entire channel just dedicated to pets. Everyone in the server is great and it's completely free to join. Digital Folklore is a production of 8th Layer Media, which would be a pyramid scheme if we had more people involved. As it stands, it's more of a line scheme. Consider supporting us on Patreon and then get two of your friends to support you supporting us on Patreon or something, I don't know. Patreon.com slash Digital Folklore. Again, check the show notes for all sorts of links, resources, and other fun stuff. And we will catch you next time. Thanks again for listening. Wow, he wasn't kidding. The price on these emoji pillows is amazing. Ha! A cry-laughing raccoon! Oh, man, I've got to get one of Oh, I should have known they'd be here. Why are they following Todd? I've got a bad feeling.
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.